Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, February 17th, 2014, and this is episode 1303 of the Survival Podcast. I don't know, I like numbers and I notice patterns in 303, makes me think of the 303 British, so... Uh, that's a uh, rifle round for those not in the know, so hopefully today we'll get it off with a shot and a bang or something like that. Anyway, before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. Uh, Safe Castle Royal is the original survival podcast sponsor. Today I'll put out a video later today, either today or tomorrow morning, uh, of a plaque that's been sent off to Vic Rontala over at Safe Castle to commemorate their fifth year as a sponsor as of January of this year. I'm a little behind on that. I've got a bunch of other plaques to, uh, to get ordered, uh, for other sponsors who came on board in that first year. We took sponsors and are still here with us. We'll be recognizing them as well in the coming times. But I'll tell you what, a sponsor with a podcast for five years, man, that's loyalty. So when you need something, consider checking out Safe Castle Royal. They have everything for your prepping needs from practical to tactical to gardening and guns and everything in between. You'll find them at uh, prepared.pro. That's the easiest way to remember their website because it's so different and unique for most of the things you hear with a .com. You can also find them at safecastle.com as well. Um, but if you uh, want to uh, get a really good deal from Safe Castle, what you want is their discount buyer's club. It's $49 for life. And then you get discounts on just about everything they sell, other than sometimes when they have sales going on. They don't, you know, apply additional discount to it. But it's a great deal. 49 bucks, you get it for life. But if you are a member of my support brigade that I'll tell you about in a minute, you'll be able to get it for free because that's what kind of a supporter and sponsor Vic is. He's been doing that now for five years with us. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags, another company that really has a long history with the Survival Podcast. They haven't been around five years as a sponsor, but they've been around since the beginning of the show because Survival Gear Bags is run by Kelly John Doe, and I don't remember exactly what his forum uh, membership number is, but it's something like 60. Uh, to give you an idea of how long Kelly's been around, his, his name on the forum is Cart Pusher. He was in the fulfillment industry, and he started doing some group buys for the Survival Podcast, and that led to the creation of Survival Gear Bags with great gear and great bags to put your gear in. He also does a discount for the members of our support brigade. He's got some good group buys going on here and there. And if you want to know how well I, uh, how well I like Kelly, uh, Kelly also runs the TSP Gear Shop that you can find at tspgear.com where I sell my official merchandise, licensed merchandise, uh, as well. So since I selected him to do that for me, what do you think I think about Survival Gear Bags? Some of the best stuff out there. Check it out. Also wanted to let you guys know, I have a special deal for you right now. This is not for MSB only. This is for everybody. From Old Grouch Military Surplus. I did a post on Friday. There's still some available. Uh, these are on uh, on military penetrating chest injury kits with bowl and chest seals. Uh, these are life-saving um, implements. They really are. They generally sell for $39.95. And... Old Grouch got a huge deal on them on some on a on a group buy, and uh, he's got them on his website for twenty two ninety five, which is a hell of a deal. But he's offering them to TSP listeners for thirteen ninety five a piece. 
This is not just for MSB. This is like when they're gone, they're gone type of thing. The discount code is TSP01, TSP01, and you'll find them at oldgrouch.com uh, in the store there. Uh, if you go to the website, uh, thesurvivalpodcast.com, you can get a link straight over to where they're at. You can see the kits. And, uh, man, I'd add a few of these to your to your gear, guys, um, especially if you don't have anything like this in your medical kits. Uh, this is something that seals basically a sucking chest wound. This is, um, again, this is something that you either have and you end up saving a life with it or you don't have and you're trying to improvise something. When I was in the military, what they actually told us to do was basically wrap the person's chest in a poncho liner. Or, I mean, that's not a liner, a poncho. Uh, and that was the best we could do. Uh, these things are incredible and they're certainly worth having in your kits. And at $13.95, they're looking at about one-third uh, of the normal, actually less than one-third of the normal sales price. It's not a third off, it's one-third the price. Uh, and again, when they're gone, they're gone. Um, you know, you don't get deals like this all the time in the military surplus world. But that's uh, Tim Glantz from Old Grouch Military Surplus has got that one set up for you. So uh, make sure you take advantage of that while you can. On uh, great deals for the MSB, MSB discounter of the day, Terroir Seeds. Uh, 10% off all seeds uh, for MSB members. In fact, I think 10% off everything they have at their website. Uh, you can find more information about them in your MSB. So, hey, consider joining the MSB. You get all these great discounts. I won't say anything more than that on it today because um, I want to move on and get into today's show right away. I do have one more quick announcement for you guys, though. And uh, this is something that's like just a... Opportunity for somebody that wants to do it is probably going to be somebody local to Dallas-Fort Worth or can drive here uh, anyway. We have a battery, back shop, battery backup workshop coming with Stephen Harris. Lots of cool stuff. Little side announcements. People that are going to be here. Brian Black from ITS Tacticals coming. You get to meet him on Saturday night. Um, so we have him as a guest, uh, a guest appear, appearance here. And uh, Nick Ferguson from Permaculture Classroom is going to be here as well, answering permaculture questions. He'll be here Friday, I believe, and may stay Saturday. He's not sure yet. Uh, and I think that our our, uh, our buddy Chris Starr is coming and bringing his Harris's hawk for everybody to take a look at a, a hunting hawk in action, as long as he keeps away from my chickens. Uh, so there's... Uh, There's a, a lot going on with this besides just doing the battery backup systems. But one of the students is sick as a dog and does not feel that he's going to be well on Friday. And we're very close on this now, and I can't just give him his deposit back. But here's what I can do. If anybody wants to come, they can basically use his deposit, and it'll be 400 bucks, and then I'll give him his deposit back. So I'll take 100 bucks off. One person wants to come in on a last-minute deal on this, and if I pick somebody up, I'll give this guy his deposit back because I'd rather have a student for 400 than have no student and a deposit for 100. Um, so that's a kind of not planned type of thing, but I'm trying to be fair with this guy, and I thought that was kind of a fair way to handle it. You know, by this point, we've got all the food bought, everything paid for, and we've built it based on a certain attendance. So um, that's I've got that. If you want to do that, don't just sign up. Email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and uh, put battery backup in the uh, subject line, and I'll, I'll hook you up with that. If anybody else is interested, we do still have a few slots open. Um, we can pick up some more stuff if we need to, so it's available if anybody wants to uh, come. Uh, I'll put a link in today's show notes to the original post about it. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I got one that's a little different than most questions I get here. Uh, this is from Karim, who always asks great questions. And Karim says, um, where does the delusional question of how much is your time worth come from? 
Uh, backstory. During the 13 and 13 last year, even though I did not quite hit 13 skills, I had a blast learning how to change oil, etc. Anyway, at one point, one of my coworkers asked me, yes, but did you count in the value of your time into the cost of doing it? Keep in mind, this guy was aware I was changing the oil in my car during the weekend when I could have normally been watching something on TV. This led me to him ask him in rebuttal, well, sure, how much do you think someone would pay me to drink beer and watch TV? That way I have more accurate calculations of how much money I saved. This question left him without any response. I think it would, was probably the gears in his head turning as he realized behind the fallacy of the claim he was making to me in order to encourage me to pay four times the cost on my car dealer, as he has no doubt been doing. Okay, now the value of your time. This is something that's been made very popular by a lot of people in the get-rich niche, people that write books about investing and real estate, things like this. It's also a favorite line of people in what I call the delusional, cultish-like thing that is the network marketing world. Uh, where they start talking to people about being rich long before those people are ever rich and act like you're rich. Um, if you if you act like you're rich, you'll become rich. If you think like you're rich, you'll become rich. And the rich don't do things like change their oil because they know the value of their time. So if it's going to take me two hours to change my oil, at the most basic thing, what they'll say is, well, if you make $20 an hour at work, then you're worth $20 an hour. And that means that you just paid $40 to have your oil changed, whereas you could have paid $19.95 down at Monarchy and they would have done it for you. And there's, when, it, when it's looked at that way, there is absolutely zero truth to it. Because if you, the only way there's truth in this is if in order to change your oil, you would have to not go to work for two hours. So in other words, you have to actually take time off of work to change your oil. Then it would actually be very, very true. So let's, flip it into like a totally different type of thing. Let's say that you got arrested for something, okay? Uh, whatever it is, I don't care. And the, the, the judge said, you can either pay a $200 fine or sit in jail for two days. Now, if you're going to sit in jail for two days, it starts tomorrow morning, and it's Monday at 8 p.m. or 8 a.m., and that means you're going to miss Monday and Tuesday from work, okay? Now, if you make $50 a day at work, right, and you had to pay a $200 fine if you if you went to jail or missed two days of work, and you don't have $200, you may very well say my time is worth more money in this case sitting in a jail cell. As long as I'm not going to prison or something like that, I'm going to like you know county holding tank for drunks or whatever, and I'm just going to sit there and eat miserable food for two days. A person might actually think, well, I'd rather sit in jail for two days than miss work and miss work and be out a hundred bucks than be free, work my ass off, and be out 200 bucks. All right? Okay. Now, flip it around and imagine now that you make $200 a day, and the judge says you can either pay a $200 fine or you can go to jail for two days. Well, now you're $200 ahead by not going to jail and going to work instead. That seems like a rid ridiculous scenario, but it's one way to start understanding how does this really work out. Now, here's where the truth in it comes from. The more money a person is worth, the more income a person has, and the more stable a person's life is, um, if they're not greedy, and if they're not psychopathic, and if they're not nuts, um, and they're not trying to become a billionaire or something like that just for the sake of being a billionaire, but they get to a point where 
They pretty much have everything that they want and have everything that they need, and they know that their income is secure enough that they're always going to be able to have that unless something catastrophic happens, and they're still able to save money, and their, their net worth is going up every month and things like that. Then you do start to value your time more, especially value your time more against things you'd rather not do. Okay, so, and then it comes down to, well, do you even know how? So it sounds to me like, in this case, Karim did not know how to change his oil. So it's not a straight across-the-board comparison anymore now, is it? So now it is, by changing my oil, I've gained a skill, and what is the value of that skill and the knowledge of how my motor works and what's going on, and if I take my vehicle in in the future to get it serviced, I know what they're supposed to do and whether they did it right or not, um, and then just the overall ability to do something. So... In that instance, it's not just about saving money versus having a, a, a service you know, place do the work for you. Um, it's about gaining skills and knowledge, which is very, very valuable. So then you've done it, and now you have to make a determination, do I actually kind of like doing this? Because a lot of guys like changing their oil. It's kind of fun. So now there's no time quotient cost analysis at all other than the direct cost. If it would cost me 20 bucks in parts to do this and 40 bucks to have it done, depending on the vehicle, it could be that high or more, um, then I'm ahead financially by doing this, and I like doing it. If I hate doing it, which I hate changing oil, I hate changing oil, probably because I was a mechanic in the military. I despise changing oil. I don't want to do it, and I already know how. There's not a lot to be gained, and unless you have a special vehicle that has special parts and special costs, That gets that also ref, gets reflected in labor because they make bullshit up when they do your oil. You're not really financially better off when you, if you can't afford to just do it. Um, so then your time does start to have value too, but it's not based on your hourly wage. It's based on how much you personally value your time in doing something else. And then we start to see the truth in all service, in all service. Period. From oil changing to somebody cooking food for you. Do you want the time or do you want someone else to do the thing for you? Can they do it better than you? Do you just not feel like cooking today so that's why you went out? And you know you're paying more but you're okay with it because today you purchased someone else's time. So the myth in this is where you have people who actually think that the reason to do something that way is because, well, I make $30 an hour at work. So therefore, my work is worth $30 an hour, so if it takes me two hours to do this, I have $60 into it, when you don't because you're not working. But if you're thinking to yourself, okay, during this time, I could be out on my homestead getting a project accomplished that really needs to get done, and then you have to ask yourself, well, what's, what's the fact that that thing that somebody else won't do for me, what's that worth to me? And if it's worth at least 60 bucks that that gets done today versus not gets done until next week and your wife doesn't know how to change the oil but you can throw the keys at her and say take the truck by the place and get it done, well, then it's worth doing. Or if you just hate doing it and you have the money and you'd prefer to do something else with your time then you're purchasing it. It is about the value of your time but those numbers are far more personal than they are you know, straight across the board linear to your wage. There's absolutely zero correlation to your wage unless you would otherwise be doing something uh, to earn that wage. So, for instance, 
I know that if I do a podcast every, every day of the week and I keep doing things that I'm supposed to do, that the value of my business increases by a certain amount and that I usually pick up a certain number of new members of the support brigade. Um, because I can't just depend on the people that are members always renewing. Some won't. I have to keep building the business. So if someone asks me to go speak at a conference, and when I go speak at that conference, I'm not going to speak on the air for a week, then I know that those people who would have otherwise become members may not, and I may not ever pick them up because they, that might have been the week they decided to start listening and they wanted to hear new stuff versus old stuff. So then I have to say, well, is it worth going? And if they want to pay me for it, does the money that I will make speaking outweigh the value of the business that I will likely lose by not being here this week? Additionally, will the exposure at the conference gain me enough additional uh, people that are aware of me to offset a full week without a show? And the answer may be no or yes. And then the other thing is, instead of just being completely about money, do I believe in what's going on there enough that I'm willing to sacrifice my time in order to be part of what they are doing? Right? So it's a far more complex thing than you know uh, an author who wants to sell a book on how to think like a rich person ever makes it out to be. And I would never use that line of thinking in an evaluation of whether or not I'm going to do something. I'd be much more methodical about it. If you're wondering how that's a preparedness topic, well... Money management and lifestyle management are a huge part of the preparedness movement. Every hour you spend doing one thing is an hour you can't spend doing another thing, and you need to be able to prioritize what are the most important things to build stability in my life now so that I'm able to stand through the trials that will come, because you will have trials in your life. If there's no economic shifts or collapse and everything stays hunky-dory and the economy doesn't crap to bed in the next 20 years and everything's fine and there's no pandemics and you never get hit by a tornado or anything like that, something still is going to impact your life and knock you off your path. And the more resiliency you've built in your life, the quicker you'll be able to get back on it and continue what you're doing and, and live a life based on thriving versus just surviving. That's why it's a... That's why it's a topic. And I also like to try to keep people from getting ripped off. And a lot of these people that sell this type of thinking are, frankly, rip-off artists who have made far more money selling books about making money than actually doing anything to make money. In fact, many of them are people who manage to get a mortgage uh, and able to purchase a house that made their net worth over a million dollars, even though they actually don't own the house because they just have debt against it, and then they get something fancy like a letter from a CPA certifying they are a millionaire, and then that qualifies them to be rich and tell you how to get rich. And then hopefully you buy enough of their books to pay for their freaking house, or at least get out from underneath it and go off and play golf somewhere and pretend that they're rich and tell you that pretending you're rich will make you rich. Because there's lots of people like that out there. Not naming names, just saying there's lots of them out there. This next email came from Mark. And uh, he says, this morning on the BB New BBC News Radio, B on BBC Radio News, there was the following story. The BBC pushed the fact 
that genetically modified blight-resistant potatoes do away with the need to spread harmful chemicals up to 25 times per season in a wet year. The BBC's agenda seems to promote this to people as a reasonable, sensible genetic modification for the good of the world. Anyone who doesn't really understand the issues that uh, the issues would have been convinced of this. How do you argue against genetic modification if one, there are cases that it is only slightly changing a plant with a gene from a wild strain of potato, two, there are claims of no need to spray. This article almost persuaded me can some can GM sometimes be good? Mark the limey. Mark, um, the answer is we don't know. We don't know. Maybe it can. This is this is my problem when I look at something like this. So what you're telling me is that this product, and I, I read the article, and I'm just going to put a link to the article because it's long and people can read it if they want to. This potato has been infused with a gene from a wild potato. So it's potato to potato. It's not caterpillar to corn or cotton to uh, cotton to fish, right? This is potato to potato. Okay, so then my first question would be, why do we need to genetically modify a potato at a gene sequence level? Why can we not create a wild cross of the genes, prove them out, prove out the traits, and develop this in a sensible way? So if it really is from another potato, could we not have done the work through breeding versus gene splicing? Okay, that's that's my first question. My second question is, Why do we deal with such heavy amounts of blight in potato cultivation? And the answer, in a large degree, is because of monocropping potatoes. So by doing this, all we do is then set up a situation where we can continue monocropping. All right? So that, that's a problem. My next, my next thing is skepticism. Okay? So we're only going to modify the potato with another potato's gene... And we're only going to do it for the purpose of blight resistance. And we're really going to sell less chemicals this way. We're really going to spray less chemicals this way. Okay, if that is all true, if what's coming next isn't, oh, well, there's this pest. And we could modify it, the potato to be risen to, to this, this, this pest. And we're going to put in something that's basically a toxin that kills this pest when it eats it, and you're going to eat that too, then I'm back to, no, we don't do that, right? But if it's just a strain from a wild potato, as long as we're going to keep monocropping, this probably would be good. But I just don't trust that it'll be the last thing. The next thing is, are you patenting life? Okay, because it talks about, yes, the seed will cost more. Well, we don't plant potatoes from seed now, do we? Right? We don't use seeds to, to grow. You can. You actually can produce true seed in potato plants. It's possible. But generally, we take potatoes, we cut them into pieces with eyes on them, we bury the piece of potato tuber, it creates a new plant, it makes new tubers. Now, very seldom do genetic modification uh, get done because there's lots of money tied up in doing this technology in a way where they don't patent the product. So now we're back to patenting life. See, this is another part of genetic modification that nobody ever wants to discuss. You are patenting a life organism. You are say, claiming ownership over life. So now I buy your potatoes. Fine. I put them in the ground. Fine. I have my little monocrop potato operation. Fine. At the end of the year, I have 50 tons of potatoes. 
I need a half a ton of potato seed next year. But if I save that half ton of potatoes, sell off 49,500, you know, 49 and a half tons, right, to market, do you come sue me for patent infringement? This I have an issue with. It's not exclusive to GMOs, but boy, do they drive with GMOs. In other words, what's the end game here? See, when I talked to Jeff Lawton about Monsanto, and, and this is not Monsanto, this is something being done in the UK, so it's probably not Monsanto. I don't remember it actually saying who it is. Um, but when I asked him about Monsanto, he said, boy, I'd like to have the research budget. In other words, we could be doing good things with some of this, but it all seems to be done to the end of owning life, controlling farmers, and in the end, selling chemicals. It's very hard for me to believe that the people behind this really want to sell less chemicals unless the people making it don't sell chemicals. See, this is the biggest reason that a Monsanto, Monsanto can't be trusted, and, and it's the biggest reason that Monsanto is doing what they're doing. They are not making a GM uh, soybean because they want to sell soybean seeds. What they really want to do is they want to sell glyphosate. They want to sell Roundup. They want Roundup-ready soy so they can spray it and then sell the farmer the chemical. But what happened is, along the way with that plan, they started realizing, hey, there's some money in these seats, too. By golly, it's, it's, it's not just selling that spray. We Don't get us wrong. That, that, that makes a lot of profit, too. And it's poisoning people, and we don't care. But, man, these soybeans are worth money, too. We can't let farmers save their own seed. So the whole system is designed to breed dependence upon these suppliers. And then these suppliers can extort the market. Then these suppliers, if they fail, everybody fails. There's no resiliency for feeding people in this way. The next thing is it's like handicapping, right? It's like, it's like saying, well, you know what we're going to do? We've got the Olympics coming up, and there's these, 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 uh, these long jumpers, ski jumpers, right? They're just the long jump where they jump and they fly through the air. They just never are never going to have a chance to win, right? But if they do really good, they might be within two feet of the best. So what we're going to do, we're going to spot them 1.5 feet. And this other guy, we're going to spot him a foot, and we're going to spot this other guy six inches. And if these guys have like a phenomenal day, they could theoretically win with that handicap. We're going to try to make everybody even. <laughs> Which if you're playing darts for beer or something in a handicap dart league makes sense. But on a global scale, it doesn't make sense. And what we're doing here is we're handicapping the need to understand where these diseases come from. And what they come from is large-scale monocropping. The reason I'm even giving a little bit here, though, when it comes to potato and tomato, blight is one of the most destructive things on the planet. And if we really can make a blight-resistant potato and tomato, And if we really can do it without going outside of the nightshade family that they're part of, if we really can do that, and if we can do that without making farmers completely dependent on the people that came up with the process, well, then maybe we should. But we need to know what we're actually dealing with here. And I don't know that this, that's come out so far on this, gives us all the information. I mean... Really, we need to know more. 
I mean, the research is being done by the Sainsbury Laboratory, but we don't really know who's funding it. It's being done in Europe where there's been a lot of re resistance to GM, and it just so happens to solve a problem that has plagued Europe for a very long time, something that would be kind of a, a soft entry for them. Like, hey, you know. So it, it, it really comes down to the fact that why are we doing it with genetic modification if it really comes from this wild potato and If it does, why can't we naturally breed the bright blight resistance into it? And three, will we just end up with stronger blight if we do it this way? In other words, when we look at what happened with BT corn, in one particular instance uh, with gene stacking in corn, a gene was stacked into the corn They created uh, bacterial bacillus thungosus, a bacteria, naturally occurring bacteria that is relatively harmless if sprayed or if occurring naturally in the soil. And it kills worms. It kills them dead. Okay, And it kills two kinds of worms in particular. It, it kills the worms that get into the cob, the corn worms, core, core earworms. It also kills corn, corn root worms. All right, root knotworms that, that live in the soil and eat the roots of the corn. So we put this into the corn. And then they got better yields. Now they were also doing other, see that's what I'm saying, it wasn't just that. They were doing other gene stacking in the corn that was allowing the spraying of chemicals and therefore the greater cell of herbicidal chemicals that you're now eating. But let's just stick to the worms. So the worms start eating the corn, the worms start dying. Well, a tiny little fraction of the worms end up being resistant to BT. Okay, they are the the, the survivors. All right. Now, a few of them here and there found each other and made little worms. Guess what? A significant portion of their babies also carried resistance, and then we had a little bit more damage to the corn in the coming year. Okay. But we still have better yields, and it's still holding out, and yeah, it works. But now there was more survivors with this genetic disposition to be resistant to the BT, and they made lots of worms. And all of a sudden, three or four years into this little experiment, we had super worms, where in the past we would have been able to knock the population back using organically applied BT. Now we have bred an entire race of worms that go, your PT makes me laugh. I'm not afraid of you. I will eat your corn. I will eat your roots. I do not care. And we've made super worms. Now, if we create a situation where blight begins to spread among these potatoes, have we made maybe a super blight? And it's definitely possible. Now, what if these techniques were being combined So we were going to use this breeding technique or even genetic modification to get this trait quickly from this wild strain of potato into this domestic strains of potato. But we were also polyculturing and we were building soil and we were doing all of these things and we were not putting all the potatoes in one place so the bright would quickly spread through all of them. Would we be better? I think we, we might be. And maybe now if we were doing all those things and we were still losing lots of potato to blight, then maybe we could make a stronger case for is this necessary. Because if we just do what we're doing, 
And we just grow 10,000 acres of potato with this blight resistance. The most likely result is going to be a new adaptation of the organism that's doing the damage in the first place that will eventually make the problem worse. And the reason I can say that is it's what's happened with all of these other different traits. So we instead of addressing the root cause, monocropping a, a plant in an environment that it's not meant to grow in in the first place. See, potatoes not supposed to grow in England and Ireland. It's not from there. That's not what's supposed to happen. And where did this all start? When did this all become a problem? When government, in its infinite wisdom, mandated that there was this one potato called the lumper that was the best potato. Everybody grow this potato. And, and I'll tell you, I think that the blight that exists in England and in Northern Europe goes all the way back to the genes that were established in blight at that time. And a lot of it came here to the United States, and we deal with it here too, specifically in certain climates where the ground does not freeze solid in the winter and knock it back in the winter. So it, I don't have like this, like it's all evil attitude toward this. It just always seems to end up there. And do I think it could ever be done in a way that would be not for evil and would work? Yes. Do I trust industry and government to do it right now based on their track record? No. So I'm 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 on I'm on well maybe with this one but probably not. Let's take another one. Just a little quick one here uh, because you're going to have to read this and look at it to really understand it. I can't really do this one on the air for you, but over at Paul Wheaton's forum permies.com there's a new uh, post up called Sepp's Spring Terrace. Sepp of course being Sepp Holzer from Austria and it details how Sepp took a place on the side of a mountain where his farm is and created a spring where there was no spring. And he did it with three terraces, some piping, and some gravel. And then planting a forest over parts of it to deal with evaporation and, and, and moisture retention in the soil and to hold the soil firm. So basically, he put in several terraces, and in one underneath it, he laid a pipe that goes downgrade and then seeps into the soil, and down from there, built a cistern uh, further down grade. And now, even in the, the driest time of the year, this spring constantly runs and provides five liters of water a minute. Five liters of water per minute, folks. That would be 1.3 gallons. Five liters is 1.3 gallons. So doing the math, that'd be about 78 gallons an hour which is about 1,800 gallons and some change a day, uh, which is a little over 13,000 gallons a week. From setting some terraces, adding some gravel, planting some trees. Not bringing water. And a place that doesn't have as much rainfall as most people seem to think. Uh, it does have a very passive snow melt every spring, though. That's, that's definitely the case. But um, this is one I think you're going to be better off just uh, having a look at on Paul's forum, uh, rather than me trying to explain to you all the particulars of how it works. But for those of you with larger pieces of land, especially with some significant slope, um, this is a really awesome thing. And this is also done in many places in a different way by Jeff Lawton using swale-based systems as well. Both of them are essentially functioning the same way. A, a terrace is, is really kind of a wide, flat swale. 
So uh, they really have a lot of similarities, but different landscapes call for different applications. And the steeper you get, the more you want to look at terraces and the less you want to look at swales. Anyway, um, have a look at this one. I think you'll be impressed with the uh, engineering, uh, both from its brilliance and its simplicity. Next up on uh, the walking to freedom front, uh, remember, I'm encouraging people that live in the shittiest states in this country like California, Illinois, New Jersey, and New York, get the hell out of there and go somewhere that has a little bit more value of your freedom and a little more fiscal responsibility with your money. Uh, Remington appears to be doing that, at least in uh, the beginnings of that. Remington, of course, being one of the most well-known manufacturers of firearms and ammunition in the United States, uh, currently has its facilities in New York, of all places, where a lot of the stuff they make is illegal. Great. So Remington, uh, the the uh, the headline on, yell on Yellowhammer.com is... Uh, or yellowhammernews.com, is actually Remington Arms moving 2,000 jobs from New York to Alabama. It's a little, Yellowhammer is doing a little bit of yellow journalism here with just the headline. They actually tell you the, the, the truth in the story. I'll read some of that to you now. High-level sources have informed Yellowhammer News that Remington, one of the world's largest gun manufacturers, will on Monday join Alabama Governor Robert Bentley in announcing that they are bringing over 2,000 jobs to Alabama. The country is viewing the move into Alabama as an expansion, but it will likely impact their Illinois, uh, New York plant as well. Uh, the New York facility currently employs over 1,200 people. It is expected to stay open but with a reduced workforce. So they're not taking 2,000 people currently employed in New York and moving them to Alabama. And Yellowhammer really shouldn't report the headline that way. That's kind of misleading. But it's still relevant, and it is in a way what's happening. The company is making the move as an expansion of capacity, production, and research, a source told Yellowhammer, on conditions of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly. The demand for Remington products has skyrocketed recently for obvious reasons, so they need to increase their production capacity. They will be expanding their research capabilities with the Alabama plant, too. The initial estimated impact on Alabama's economy will be roughly $87 million. According to Remington's website, the company designs and produces and sells sporting goods products for hunting and shooting sport markets, as well as military, government, and law enforcement markets. Founded in 1816 in upstate New York, the company is one of the nation's oldest continuously operating manufacturers. Remington is the only U.S. manufacturer of both firearms and ammunition products and one of the largest domestic producers of shotguns and rifles. The company distributes its products throughout the United States in over 55 foreign countries, blah, 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 moving to Alabama. Okay, uh, I think there's something wrong there. Unless somebody's going to correct me, and, and Winchester manufactures firearms and ammunition, do they not? Winchester manufactures firearms and ammunition. I can go buy Winchester ammunition. Maybe Winchester doesn't actually manufacture their Winchester-branded ammunition. I'm not sure of that. Somebody let me know, but... That's what this says, and it says it's off Remington's website, so it probably is true in some way. Remington is the only U.S. manufacturer of both firearms and ammunition products. Is that true? That's just a little tidbit in there. Anyway, the bigger story. Remington needs 2,000 new employees. They have 1,200 in Illinois or in uh, New York. Okay. Now, they say they're going to have a reduced workforce. Let's say it's only 200. 200 people go from that facility. 2,000 people end up. So you end up with 1,000 still working in New York. You think that's really the plan? You think Remington really is only going to do that? 
Let me tell you what I think Remington's going to do. I'm not, I'm not doing yellow journalism here. I'm telling you I'm guessing. I think Remington is going to move almost all of its manufacturing, um, shipping, product development, everything that actually entails stuff over time to Alabama. And this is a way to do it because it's very hard to pick up and move an entire company. They'll start pegging back, pegging back what goes on in New York as they ramp up productivity in Alabama. And eventually, they'll expand in Alabama and close New York down. This is it. They're out of there. This, this company's been in New York since the 18-freaking-hundreds. They have an expansion goal, and they're like, yeah, screw that. I mean, we could just like expand right here where everybody already is, where our best people already are, where our experienced people already are. We could just get another building, and we could just... And you know what they say? It costs too damn much money. We pay these pricks too much in taxes, and guess what? They hate us. They hate everything about us, so screw them. Let's take our $87 million dollars and our 2,000 new jobs, and head freaking south to a state that actually values what we do, and let's set up shop there, we'll call it an expansion, but the days of you pricks and you are getting our tax dollars are going downhill fast. That's what I think is happening here. But I'm going to tell you, I think that. Again, I really think that Yellowhammer, whoever these people are, because I've never heard from them, is really walking the edge of yellow journalism, no pun intended, where they say Remington Arms moving 2,000-plus jobs from New York to Alabama because those 2,000 people are not currently employed in New York, never are going to be, and never were going to be. But what they're kind of trying to say is, well, they could have been. If New York didn't have ridiculous taxes, extremely high property taxes, a very high cost of doing business, and wasn't one of the most unfriendly uh, states in the Union to the Second Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America, completely in violation of the Second Amendment, by the way, New York, that maybe we'd still be here, but we're not going to do that now. Follow their example, folks. If Remington can do it, you can do it. It's much harder to move a company than it is to move a household. And I think it's easier to rent a U-Haul, make some new friends, and find a new job than it is to live oppressed and in tyranny. I know not everybody can, but if it's in the cards at all, at least consider it, especially if you live in one of these most shittiest of all states to live in right now. And again, New York, you're at the top of the list, guys. You, New Jersey, Illinois, and California. right? It's, it's even hard to decide who gets the fifth spot. But the four shittiest ones... Man, when we ran the voting at Walking to Freedom, you guys were a lock. You guys were a lock on this. There's no debate. It's like, yeah, those four are in. Those four are in. And then you go, Hawaii's more restrictive on weapons than Maryland, but Hawaii's out in the middle of the ocean. It doesn't really bother anybody. And Maryland's right in the middle of this. And it's like, you know, well, what about Massachusetts? And the, yeah, yeah. It was hard once we got past five. But the top four, man. You guys make it easy. Oh, by the way, the manufacturers have already come up with an AR-15, um, just using some basic parts that were always available for AR-15s that's compliant with New York law under the SAFE Act. The SAFE Act. What a pile of crap. If you people in New York don't get that pile of crap re repealed, I don't know what to say. Your state's done. I think it's done anyway. I think economically it's done. I think government-wise it's done. I think tax-wise it's done. I think you're going to see more and more companies getting the hell out of there, left and right, hand over fist, 
uh, states like Alabama, Florida, Texas, competing to bring your companies to them. Montana and Wyoming are actually making really attractive offers to people as well. You guys are doing this to yourselves. And those of you up there who think all this government is good, you deserve what you're going to get. The most productive and brightest individuals, the most productive companies, the companies with the best jobs, they're going to leave. There's a fact, an absolute fact, that freaking big government idiots on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats both, refuse to accept money goes where it's treated well, and you can't change that. It's a fact. It's like gravity. If you drop shit, it falls. You can put wings on something and get it to fly, but it better be designed right, and usually you need some energy to get it off the ground. All right? Well, when you guys are doing with taxes and with the oppression of liberty is the exact opposite of the application of smart engineering and the application of energy. It's the sucking of, enger- of, of energy, and it's twisted social engineering. That defies the individual rights and the sovereignty of individual people, and you deserve what you're getting, which is one company after the other leaving. And you know what? When it's Remington leaving New York, when it's Magpul leaving Colorado, since it's firearms and since they're big companies, it gets a lot of attention. It's not really what's going to hurt you guys, though. You know what's hurting you? Small guys. Two or three employees, small companies, much easier to move, much more nimble, saying to hell with it, and walking away every day. That seems so insignificant to the mind of the bureaucrat, but you guys are pretty good with graphs. You might want to take a look at some graphs. Those numbers are starting to add up, and you're starting to suffocate and die under your own bloated corpses that you've you've created for yourselves. Good for you. You deserve it. Let's take another one. Now let's shift gears to a permaculture question so my blood doesn't, uh, uh, pressure doesn't go up too high. Uh, question for Jack from Rob in Michigan. In forest gardens, how far to support, how far, uh, support species need to be from fruit trees? More information. After most of listening to the show, in early 2009, I planted a fruit orchard in my yard. I had minimal success throughout and thought adding some support species to help growth and production. I have apples, pears, peaches, and plum, but have only harvested pears. We've had several bud-killing late frosts in Michigan the last couple of years. I, uh, I I was planning on planting Russian or autumn olive, gumi, and maypop to help with nitrogen. I was just concerned with how far these and other plantings would need to be from each other. Thanks, Rob, in Michigan. Very straightforward question that I'd love to give you a very straightforward answer to, Rob. Um, but like most things in permaculture, it depends. I mean, one of the first things I would ask you is, well, how far apart are your trees now? Is there room to squeeze stuff in between them like that? Uh, do you maybe need to, to, to kind of circumnavigate the existing orchard and not pluck a few in between there? And it, it really does depend. Are you planning on putting in lots of support species and letting them only get so big and continuously pruning them back and chopping and dropping their green uh, to the ground and uh, eventually having in four to five years only a few of them left? Well, then the answer is quite close. If the answer is you want to put them in there as a permanent part of the, the, the system, then it's probably productive tree, support tree, productive tree, support tree, productive tree, support tree, like that. And then you got to think about your distances. I'll put a link in today's show notes to a project that Jeff Lawton did in the deserts of um, of of Jordan, 
And you'll look at the spacings there, and you'll see they're about 10 feet. So it's like a, a, a main tree, 10 feet over a support tree, 10 feet over a main tree, 10 feet over a support tree. So that would be 10 feet. But if your trees are already 10 feet apart, they're probably not, because it takes real guts to plant trees that close together. Um, then that's probably not going to be doable if they're already that close together. If they're 20 feet apart, which they might be, you might be able to go in and strategically just plug in these support species. Um, just a, a, a few other things, though, I want to point out. Number one, maypop, which is a passion flower, does not fix nitrogen. So it's a fine thing to add to your forest garden. It's a wonderful thing to add. I don't know how it'll deal with your winters. It should be fine. I don't know that you'll get a lot of productivity out of it, though. I don't know that you have long enough summers. It'll definitely overwinter in the ground, especially if mulched. It won't matter how cold it gets. It'll be fine under there. Uh, and it you know, comes back from roots every year. So that'll be okay. But I don't know how well it'll produce, but you could certainly try it. You want to get it in places where it gets a lot of sun. Definitely. Um And, you know, there's a lot of things you got going on here that, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to solve just with support species. First of all, you're in a much more stable soil environment. There's probably no need in your climate and in your environment with all of the deciduous drop to do something crazy like seven support species to one main species. A one-to-one -one ratio is probably more than adequate. Uh, and then again, planting around them might be another thing. As long as you're far enough out, you're not shading them out. And since your, your, your main trees are already up and your support trees would be smaller, you're probably not going to have that problem. They'll, they'll probably catch up and canopy quite nicely together. So it depends. <laughs> uh, but have a look at this, um, post by Jeff Lawton. If you're in this quandary yourself, uh, because it's the first time I ever actually saw him do it this way. I've always seen him do, Mainframe food forest, lots of support species to a few main species. But in this instance, because he had a design constraint, which was the farm itself he was doing the consultancy for, he had to go with this one-to-one -one ratio, and it looks like it's worked really well. And it's got me thinking about some things I can do here. Then the other thing is, I notice this with people. I want to plant Russian or Olive, olive Gumi, as my support nitrogen species, because Maypop's not a nitrogen fixer. Okay. Does it strike anybody else's eye that those things are productive? Um, they're all Elganus species. Um, I would probably think more toward uh, Russian or Olive. That uh, Russian or Autumn doesn't really matter. You want to make sure you're not doing the soil disturbances around where you plant these things. You're going to get a lot of suckering. If you don't disturb the soil, they're not a problem. Um, with being invasive, you're pruning them back, no problem. Um, but... It's a common thing that we want all, everything to be for us, too. And gummies and autumn olives and stuff like that are for us, too, right? Yeah, okay. So maybe it's not enough diversity, and maybe dropping in some locusts, even though they're not for us, might not be a bad idea. Or maybe, you know, something like a mimosa. There's mimosa that are hardy enough to be up there. And, and not trying to make everything productive for us to bring us more diversity and more pollinators. Because if we want a good fruit harvest, we don't just want um, to not have a late frost take our buds, but we want lots of bees. So if we had something like locust and mimosa also extending, and then maybe we need to think bigger than this, and like, well, what kind of herbace, herbaceous layer do you have in here? Do you have a lot of herbs? You know, Or is this a grass field with a bunch of fruit in it? 
that could be a bigger problem in of itself than a lack of support species. Because you're in a stable climate, you really are. I mean, it's the stable soils, good breakdown every year of, of all your leaf litter. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to grow food. But the other thing is, you also have to start looking at, you might need to do some pruning, Because the sun has to hit that fruit to get it to ripen for you, so that's another issue. And you might have to look at, do you need to do something for frost protection? Do you need to do something to block wind in the direction of your primary wind so that that frost is not as hard on your fruit? Because you're a bit north. Um, apples should not be a problem. Pears, and you've got those, should not be a problem. Peach and plum, ugh. It's, those are, those are a little difficult. So maybe bring in some cherries as a, 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 a stone fruit that has more resilience in your climate. So cherry, conventional, and maybe small bush cherries like Nanking cherry would be another good addition that you could build into your system. These are some things to consider without knowing more about your existing layout and all. I, I can't say a lot more, but hopefully this helps anybody with this question. And again, I'll put a link in today's show notes to this project that uh, Jeff did in Jordan with these straight line swales and the, this alternating productive support, productive support, and the whole story about it. Uh, it's worth reading. It'll help you think through some of these things with a little bit more knowledge. Uh, here's another question, kind of in the permaculture world, certainly in, in the world of people that just want nice homesteads that have ponds on them. Uh, can I plant trees into the dam of my pond? I have a one-and-a-half-acre pond. The north side of the, this pond has a berm dam that is 15 to 20 feet wide, flat on top, and just under uh, 250 feet long. The north non-pond side of the berm is about 45 degrees to 50 feet wide. The soil is really compacted. I'm afraid that if I plant trees into this, that it might loosen the dam and damage my pond. Um, this from Art. Art, you are right to be concerned. What Jeff Lawton says is anything bigger than you can take down with a machete, take it down. Um, some of the best things that you can plant there are grasses or shallow-rooted things that will hold the soil together like really, really good, like bamboo. Bamboo is an amazing crop for a dam breast. Um, it'll get plenty of moisture. It will... Only go down a few inches. Bamboo doesn't go very deep. It will form a root mat that just is almost immovable, and it will add a lot of resilience to it. You could also do any type of pasturing. You could do shallow-rooted shrubs and things like that. And the further you get down the berm, the little bit bigger in, uh, type of things you can do. But right up on the top of that dam breast, just don't plant trees. That's the answer there, um, period. It's, it's not a good idea. You might get away with it. But you might not, and when you don't get away with it, it's really bad. Um, it, it gets to a point where it's almost impossible to stop the failure once it starts to leak and seep on you. Um, so I personally wouldn't do it. There are exceptions to this where you see ponds that are surrounded by trees and there's no problems. They're usually in very flat areas where the, the pond is more of a hole than a dam. It's more of a compacted clay hole. Uh, rather than an impoundment. When you get into impoundments, uh, it, it's still not a good idea, by the way, to, to encourage it in, in even those scenarios. But when you get into an impounded dam and you plant large trees on the dam breasts, sooner or later those roots just know where water is and they poke through to get it and then you have an opening 
And it, it's not that you're loosening it. You're actually, when you have a berm of any kind, if you plant trees on it, you actually stabilize the berm. But you're creating pathways. And when we use it in permaculture, we call these fast carbon pathways. You put a support tree in there, and it puts down roots, and you kill it, and then those roots die, and then that opening is available for other organisms to use. Well, in this case, that other organism is H2O, also known as water, and that's not what you want in a dam. So if it's bigger, then you can cut down with a machete, cut it down, and don't let it be there. And in fact, even with bamboo, Jeff says that once their bamboo gets to the point where it's going to be hard to take down with a machete, they take it down and let it keep going. I don't think the bamboo's ever going to hurt anything at all. I think that's just how they make a decision when to harvest some of their bamboo for many uses that they do with it. So... That would be something, or again, I would manage it mostly as pasture. Uh, you can put poultry up there. They're not going to cause any problems at all. I would keep cattle off of it. Sheep or sheep and goats are probably fine. You know, cattle can be up there once in a while, but not often. They, you know, they can't be there very often because they will degrade the, the, the soil just from their weight in that type of an environment. It's not where I'd want them to be. Uh, let's take another call. Not another call. Jeez, I'm on Friday already. I want the week over. Uh, no Friday show this week, by the way, guys. But I'm trying to get Jeff Lawton on the air. And if I have Jeff between now and Wednesday, I will play his show on Friday. We'll see. Oh, I wanted to read this one more little side note here by Art uh, on an unrelated note. Your practice of creating throwaway email addresses for forwarding and forwarding them to your primary email address is brilliant. I usually have to change my email address every three to five years because I get sick of all the marketing. Thanks for the great idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people out there use a really good email program, and they're spam, can, can spam, law compliant, and if you're tired of hearing from them, you click a link, and you unsubscribe, and then that's it, and they're gone. But a lot of people, even that do that, the problem is, and people say, well, when you unsubscribe, it tells them that your email is valid. And they, no, trust me, they don't care. That, 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 that's, that's 1999 thinking. That's gone. It's over. It's done. Quit regurgitating that crap. They don't care that you've unsubscribed or not unsubscribed as far as what to do with your email address. But what a lot of people do when they set up email capture is they set up a system that, with terms that basically say once they have your email address, they can do anything they want to with it. So let's say company A collects your email address under those terms. And it even looks like it says they don't sell your info, but it really means they can sell your info and they're going to sell your info if they can. Um, or they actually make your info available to others is another way they look at it, which basically says they put an offer in front of you to say, hey, we have a part partner that does this. You opt into their system. You're still thinking it's the first system. Now you're in a company B system. They have a totally different, we'll sell your shit to anybody we want to policy. And then there's people that just harvest your email address from anywhere they can get it like that, and they don't give a damn, and they have no policy. They just do whatever they want. So what happens is you submit your email address to this company, and then the next thing you know, you're getting all this spam, and you think they did it, and they may not have done anything wrong, or they may have. You don't really know. But there are things that you can do to prevent a lot of annoyance with email becoming too much spam and bulk and crap. And one of the main things is when you have a company asking you for your email address and you don't really know who they are and you want whatever it is they are asking for in return, you can do something like go to trashmail.com uh, or go to mailinator.com and set up a little quick temporary email address and get whatever it is. Now, if they're using like AWeber, which means they're using a good system and they're using an opt-out system, 
um, when you try to use Mailinator, it knows that you're using a trash mail, and it will say, goodbye, go out. So another way around that is to set up, like, let's say, um, a Gmail account. You know, my trash email number three at gmail.com. It's probably gone now, right? But whatever, you know, you can make it for, you can actually call it who you subscribe to. Like if you were doing it with me and you didn't know me, you could do TSP email 3952 at gmail.com and then forward that to your main email. And if you start getting shitty emails that's coming from that forwarder, just shut the forwarding off. Or forward it like, I don't know, to, to Obama. Right? Whitehouse.gov. Or something like that, right? You know, and then you don't get any more out of that little avenue. And it's such a simple thing, and it, it's something most people just don't think about. And it, it, a lot of times what happens is you know somebody wants your email. You don't want to be bothered, so you, you could get something valuable. You just don't trust them enough yet, and you're not sure. Call it dating, right? It's like if we're dating and I don't really know you yet, you know, I might give you my email address or my phone number, but I'm not giving you my physical address at my house, right, until I... Till we kind of like, you know, we get to a point where we're like, hey, you know, we, we think we're going to go out a few more times. Because for all I know, you could be like the psycho from whatever that movie was, Fail Attraction or whatever. So like when we're, you know, you're dating someone new and you just met them, you tend to give them a little less than all of the information. Unless you're a dummy, right? So when you're, when you're dealing with somebody on the internet and they're asking you for your contact information, it's kind of like dating. So like if I give you this, this, this email address, you can reach me anytime you want to, to my main email. But if you start to abuse that privilege, I'll just shut it off. If you never abuse that privilege, then I'm not going to worry about it. And it's a real simple thing. Now, you got to be careful with it. You can blame people for shit they didn't do with this. All right? I've had people tell me, I only had this email address just for TSP, and I never used it for nothing else, and it's, it's you did this, and blah, 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 and... You know, you, you, you just wonder, right? So you Google that email address. You just take the email address, you search for it like a keyword, and you find out something like, well, they posted it on the blog. It's that way people can get a hold of them, or they put it in a forum somewhere or whatever. Somewhere online, they actually typed it out visibly. Well, at that point, anybody could have grabbed it, and there's actually these things called scraper programs. What scraper programs do is they're intelligent, They, they recognize certain characters like the at sign and then like preceding a, a dot com and the at sign is in a continuous word and there's a word and an at sign and another word and a dot and those are all together like it's one word and it knows that's an email address. And it doesn't matter if it's hyperlinked or not, they just send these out as bots and they just start crawling through links all over the internet and they find a link to my blog and a link to your blog and a link to Facebook and they just crawl everywhere. And whenever they see... That little telltale mark that it's an email address, they just scrape it, and they stick it in a database. And if it happens to be right near a name, they scrape the common name, too. Boom, and they know your name. That's why a lot of times they get it wrong. It's something stupid. Like, I'll get an email where somebody's put my email address up because I never put it up that way. It'll call me The Survival. The. Did you know that you can make money on the Internet with Bitcoin or some other crap, right? That's scraped. That's why you'll notice whenever you look at my website and it says you can email me at jack at the survival podcast dot com. It says jack space at the survival podcast and dot com is spelled out because it's less subject to being scraped. I'm going to get spam anyway. I know that. 
right? I have haters that put my email address in this shit just so I'll get spam. I, it's going to be that way. But you still can minimize it with simple tricks like that. So that's something that I wanted to, to toss in there. I almost forgot about it. So thanks for reminding me about that, Art. This is an interesting question. Um, this comes from uh, Teresa. Teresa says, do permaculture teachers in North America really need a minimum of 1,440 hours of additional training spanning 10 years under close supervision of an expert after completing a 72-hour PDC course to be effective? Please comment on the Permaculture Institute of North America's new proposed standards, pina.permaculturenorthamerica.org slash assets slash edu diploma pdf. I understand you, Jeff Watt, and Paul Wheaton all began working with just basic 72-hour PDC certificate. According to the experts at PINA, experts at PINA, yeah, uh, that is inadequate training. I could find no endorsement on the PN, PINA site from the originators of permaculture, David Holgram and Bill Mollison, uh, you won't, um, who set the original standard. PINA does not mention the originators will obtain a yield from this initiative. Particularly concerning is PINA's requirement for documentation of how the candidate is implementing permaculture in personal life, including the design and status of the candidate's home site and livelihood to illustrate permaculture ethics in action. End quote. Even Eric Tosemeyer lived in an apartment when he first began teaching permaculture. Thanks, Teresa. Um, here's what I think about PINA's new proposed standards. They can very well have any standard they want. Will anybody give a shit? And my answer is, I won't, and I probably most other people won't. Um, the truth is that the people behind this have a bigger discrepancy, in my understanding from the sources that I have so far, uh, with the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia and Bill Mollison, who actually started this whole damn thing in the first place, and it ain't about hours of anything. One of their biggest problems is that these are people who like permaculture events where everybody holds hands and sings and chants and waits for mud fairies to appear. That that's a big part of their thing. They want the love and the hate through love, right? The love as hate crap, which is we hate all these people because they're not like us, but we're all about love, right? That this group is committed to making permaculture a basic hippie religion. But that's, that's my understanding of this, and I, I see nothing to doubt that. But, hey, they can do whatever they want, right? They can have purple permaculture, we can have blue permaculture, whatever. Here's the thing. Anybody that actually gives a shit about this company's new proposed standards needs to understand something. They have no more authority to set a standard than I do. But I certainly could set a standard. I could start tomorrow the TSP Permaculture Research Institute, Chairman, Jack Spierko. I could go out and solicit a board to draw up a standard, or I could draw up my own standard. I could say that anybody that says they're doing permaculture that can just clearly demonstrate that they are teaching based on the original work of Bill Mollison and, and, and David Holgram and, and, and teaching permaculture based on the principles espoused by the founders and the current PRI of Australia qualifies for the TSP endorsement of permaculture. Or I could create a rigorous standard, as these people are attempting to do, saying that to be certified by the TSP Institute of Permaculture, thou must come to North Texas, and thou must sit in front of thy mighty Jack Spierko, and thou must kiss his, the, my, 
my big toe on my left foot, which is rife with fungus, so thy fungus may infiltrate thy mind and thy body, and only then when thou hast been fungally inoculated by the left big toe of the spirico, shall thou be ordained to be valid as a teacher of TSP-certified permaculture. Or I could say that anybody who puts poop on a stick and sticks it in the ground and inoculates soil with poop can teach permaculture under my banner because it's mine and I can do whatever I want to with it. It's libertarian free marketism. And if I did anything as ridiculous as those things, you'd probably think, well, his, his certification means nothing. He's lost his flippin' mind. I'm not kissing his big friggin' toe. No one's going to give a shit about this. I'm going to go back to doing what I did all before. Okay? I don't think that these people in Pina are that bad, but I don't think they are an improvement over what we're already doing. This is the, this is the reality. You, when you take a PDC from anyone, Since no one actually owns the word permaculture, there were some fights over the trademark, which started a lot of this bifurcation and fighting and infighting and stuff, where the PRA said, we own the word, it's our trademark. And they said, no, you don't. And then they went to court and it said, like, no one owns this word. There is no trademark. It's completely, anybody can use it. So then people started fighting over who was going to control it since it wasn't controllable. And there's some people in, in New Mexico that make these peanut people look like really great guys. What's his name? Pittman. That guy's a jackass. Right? And they just hate other people, even though those people are the ones that got him started. I'll, I'll leave that alone for now. And, and because of that, anybody can say they're teaching permaculture. Anybody can certify anybody. But will the certification mean anything if the person you're presenting it to looks it up? Well, if you're certified by a Permaculture Research Institute certified instructor... And you go on to permacultureglobal.com, uh, you can register that you were taught there, and the teacher can sign off that they taught you. And I can see your teacher, all the other things that he's done, and everything that he's presented. And that's the PRI's model. And I, Jack Spirico, can certify you any way that I want to. As a permaculturist myself, who has completed a PDC from Jeff Lawton, no problem. And that's it, and there you go. But I was teaching permaculture long before I had a PDC, And I've gotten better and better and better at it. And I think that by the time I took a PDC, I knew more about permaculture than the person who will remain nameless who I got my first PDC from. But I'll tell you who it wasn't. It wasn't Falk and it wasn't Wilson. And it wasn't Wheaton. All right. So I think by the time I got my first PDC, I knew more about permaculture than my teacher. And that's the problem PINA, to their credit, is trying to correct because there's this freewheeling thing going out there. But if you want a higher standard from your instructor, well, the PRI has that as well. And so on Permaculture Global, they've made room for everybody. People that have taken a permaculture uh, course, uh, PDC, from someone who's not recognized as one of their instructors, it's just they've taken a PDC, you can see who they took it with, and you can examine that for yourself and make your own decision on whether you want to consult with that person or not. Uh, if a person has taken a PDC, from someone who is recognized by the PRI, then they have a PRI-verified uh, PDC. Right? But they're not verified as a PRI-level instructor just yet. So if you go to Bill Wilson, who has this, then when you get your certification, you have the PRI certification level, which is fine. If you actually say, well, I want to be like Bill Wilson. I want to be like Ben Falk. 
Right. I want to be able to teach PDCs, and when I give my students a certification, I want them to have the PRI-endorsed PDC beyond just the fact that that's where I got mine, and I want the blessing of the PRI. This is There's all kinds of crap you have to include, but this is the, the meat. You will need at least one reference from a teacher you have co-taught with. You need at least three references from students of the classes and courses you have taught and co-taught. Uh, stating references need to be uh, from at least two different courses. So even if you have three students that say you're wonderful, but they're all from the same course, not good enough. Okay, A summarized, coherent, and organized course outline, subject, headings, subheadings, bullet points, summarized, descriptions, no more than five pages in total length. Note this course outline will be made visible from a link on your WPN profile so students can see what they'll be taught. So your students need to be able to know what you're going to teach before they show up. If they are a graduate of your course, they will then have the option to comment on whether or not those subjects were actually covered. So what the PRI has said is if you say you're covering this, well, you better be covering it because your students will narc you out if you don't. Um, and then you need full, coherent teacher notes evidencing that all topics of the designer's manual are covered. You need a documentation portfolio including photographs of at least two reasonable-sized permaculture implementations from beginning to end. Documentation should describe the design process, implementation, adjustments to the original design, if any, outcomes, and lessons learned in the process. So you actually have to have two projects that you've taken from infancy through to fruition and development documented that you've done as a consultant or done on your own. You have to have all that to get that level of certification where it's like, so there is this higher level of assurance. Now, my question is, do the students you're marketing to give a shit? In other words, I'll tell you that this nonsense from Pima where they say, well, you got to have 10 years to be a senior instructor. I have talked to people and seen teachers in permaculture who are pretty good at what they do, that have been doing it for 10 years, that would meet all the qualifications under this new Pima crap, that are boring. They're not engaging. They don't make students, they know what they're teaching, but they don't make students really understand it. They don't have the passion. They're not great teachers. Doing something for 10 years means you're experienced, not that you're good. Seriously, right? But then I've met people who get the bug, they take a PDC, or they do it on their own. They get the, the manual, they research it, they learn everything they can, they watch videos, they go and listen to podcasts, they do all the stuff they can, and they practice it, and in a year, they're a better teacher than that 10-year teacher. And I think, in reality, all of these certifications are only a piece of the whole, and that what most students want is the knowledge. It's the knowledge. So we have people fighting over whose piece of paper is more valid. I tell you, Sepp Holzer doesn't have a certification from anyone. But he's done more than most. Period. End of the, end of the story. It's it. He didn't even call what he was doing permaculture until somebody told him it was. So does that mean that if you went and, and, and studied, and Sepp's kind of done with his teaching at this point to a large degree, other than he's doing some touring and stuff, but the guy really taking up the, man, the mantra from him is his son. So if you went to the Kermatterhof and spent a month studying with Sepp Holzer's son and seeing how everything that was done there, and when you left you didn't have a stamp on your hand, does it make your knowledge any less valuable? See, my contention has always been that permaculture is an anti political, anarchist movement. It has no politicians or priests and no rules other than care of the earth 
care of people, and reinvestment of the surplus to the same end. And those are not my words. Those are the guy that founded the whole thing, Bill Mollison's words. And what hippie permaculturists will say is permaculture is bigger than one man, and things have changed in time. We have to evolve. No. Bullshit. Then you call it something else. Because the only reason that anybody in the world even gives a shit about the word permaculture today is because Bill Mollison made them. Bill Mollison should have control over that word if he wants it because he made it matter. And without him, it wouldn't matter. Holgram is a great guy. He's got some hippie bullshit, but man, he's a thinker, he's smart, and he really helped get the movement off the ground. He is a co-founder, period. But without him, no one would care about the word. I don't even know if it would be called permaculture. It might have become some obscure thing that branched into a thousand different things. Like, today you have people, I'm a fruititarian, I'm a pescan vegan, I'm a whatever, you know? A pescatarian or whatever. You know, it might be like that. Instead of having all these techniques in a single wardrobe. So, I don't give a shit what, what, what Pima does. And I don't really care about their certification. And if they want to do woo-woo crap in permaculture, let me tell you something, it's probably not going to go over very well. Because they're people that are doing the proverbial preaching to the choir is all they are. And, and what I mean by that is getting people who are pretty much hippies, uh, big government, social justice-minded individuals that like to roll around in the dirt together and sing songs to plant a few gardens is not a challenge at all. They like to do stuff like that. And they already believe they're doing it for a reason other than why we're really doing it. So fine. Go ahead and do that. You know what's a challenge? A challenge in permaculture is to get people that have never heard the word, have no idea what it means, that are not hippies, that are living a normal, everyday, mainstream life, to transform their backyard into something that produces for them. That matters. Because most of these people in this woo-woo world are broke. I'm sorry, but they are. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're broke. But if, you, if you're broke and you stay broke your entire life, there's only so much you can do. There's the standout examples uh, where people uh, remain broke their entire life and had massive influence in the world like Mother Teresa. But you ain't Mother Teresa now, are you? The average American, the average citizen of a developed nation, is the target of permaculture, not the hippie fringe of that nation. But the hippies love permaculture when they hear about it. They think it's great. And then they want to transform it into their little hippie yaya crap. Permaculture isn't even about growing food. It's a design science. It's based on science, not metaphysics. And that's pretty basic, easy thing to understand. And I can reach the suburban housewife with design science. Pretty hard to reach with metaphysics when she's worried about putting food on her kid's table tomorrow. But I can say, here's how to do that. And be a better, better steward of your environment, even right in your own backyard. And no, you don't have to chant crap, and we don't have to hold hands, and we don't have to sing, or any of this other crap. Let me, let me make sure you don't think I'm crapping on those activities. I've seen permaculture classes where there's a delineation of that stuff. So people go, it's real hands-on stuff, you're there for eight hours of course work, you start, you finish, you're done, right? And that is what it is. In downtime and breaks and stuff, 
people get together and sing Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore, with their feet in the mud or whatever it is, you know? Um, and no one's compelled to be part of that, and no one is ostracized for not being a part of that. And while some people are doing that, other people are kicked back at a campfire telling war stories and drinking a really awesome microbrew and talking about the qualities of that microbrew. And everybody's happy with that. I love that. I have no problem with that. I don't, there's no, dude, one group of people are naked rolling around in the mud and chanting things to the moon spirits. Another group of people are already turned in for the night. And another group of people are over here, like I said, around the campfire talking about guns and firearms and everybody's cool. That's anarchism. That's awesome. Okay. When the instructor drags that level of crap into the courses, I don't care if they have 10 years. It's no longer permaculture. It's psychological programming, and it has no place in a design science. It's social engineering versus geophysical engineering. I'm in permaculture because it's design science. I'm in permaculture because it will help me solve problems. Because it'll let me analyze a business. That's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow because plenty of you wanted to hear it. I'm not in it for hippie, ya ya woo woo mud fairy bullshit. And I don't think most of the people who we actually need to influence to start doing these things will ever be won over by it. And I really think that's what you're going to get out of these, these Pima folks. I could be wrong, and if I am, I'll admit it when I am. Um, but to think that somebody needs... 1,440 hours to be verified as a solid permaculture teacher is nonsense. It's absolute preposterous nonsense. And if they can make, make people care, good for them. Good for them. That's I won't say like they're just shit. I'll just say like I don't care about that certification. I don't care. If you care, go find one of their instructors. If you want to learn solid design science from someone who knows what the hell they're doing, talk to me or one of the people that I endorse. And you'll get what you pay for. Anyway, let's take another one. Um, this next one's kind of an interesting one. It takes me back to my days as a utility install contract installation. Uh, my days when we did directional boring and trenching and things like that. This was back in the uh, 90s. Um, DIY gas line locating. <laughs> Be careful with gas lines. Gas lines are one of the chief reasons I got out of the business because even when they give you locates, sometimes they're wrong or sometimes they miss things. I have an old property and my meter is on the edge of the property. The utility company does not offer a free service of locating my private gas line. The going rate is around $200 for a private company. Do you have any tips and tricks on locating a gas line? My DIY intuition tells me that it should be as simple as following the line of sight. As a contractor, we'd want the easiest, fastest way of getting the job done, and that means laying the straightest line possible. The easy way out is further supported by the fact that the line being raised up and over the top of the porch so as to avoid the concrete. I can visibly see where the pipe enters the ground from the meter and visually see where the line enters the house because it's strapped underneath of my porch. Thanks for all you do, bud, and this is from Ruben. Um, it's probably the case that that gas line goes on a pretty damn straight course between those two points. Don't you bet on it if you're going to put heavy equipment in the ground because if you blow a gas line, you have the risk of blowing shit up and it is not a straightforward process to put it back together. Um, it's specialized and it's going to be expensive. And the whole time it's going and blowing gas into the air, assuming nothing ignites it and nobody gets burned or blown up, 
your meter's going tick 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 like that and you just bought all the gas and you cannot call the gas company and say shut it off it's going to keep running i hit big 4 inch main gas with a drill to the hole in the side of it they never shut the pressure off now at the meter you can probably shut it off so at least you could you could at least stop that but until you shut it off so if you're going to risk this thing at least know how to do that before you do it now most likely you have a pretty small line it's probably somewhere between a half inch to an inch that runs from that meter to your house this makes things a little bit more complicated what i would normally tell you if you got a big main is that you get yourself a probe This is made out of fiberglass with a point on it. It'll never go through a gas line either, just with physical pressure. And assuming you're not in rocky soil, if you're in sandy or clay or whatever, you can find where the line is and push the probe in the ground until you tap and you hit it, okay? And once you feel it, you put a flag in the ground and you move a little further and you keep messing around. You can eventually just touch it with a probe, and most gas in a main is going to be 36, not always, it's supposed to be, but about 36 inches deep. Most service gas lines are going to be 24 inches. Again, dirt gets eroded, dirt gets piled on, contractors do shitty work, what have you. But most of the time you're looking at two feet for service and three feet for a main. I've seen them as deep as 48 inches and steady 48 inches for miles. And I've seen them as, I've seen service as shallow as eight to 10 inches, which is really bad and not where it's supposed to be. But I've seen it done. I've never seen it in a northern climate, but I've seen it in a southern climate because of frost heaves and things like that. They can't get away with going that shallow, but they know they can in the south, so they will at times. The problem is when you got that little bitty line instead of a big four or six or eight inch line, you can miss it. It's really hard to find with the probe, and you're not really sure, am I on the line or am I on a rock? When you're hitting a big poly gas line, you, it gives a little. You can feel that's what it is. If it's a metal line for something different, usually I've never seen gas in, in metal, but it, I guess it is in the big main uh, pipes, but not in service pipes. Um, but when you hit something metal, you kind of know it's metal. If you hit concrete water lines or sewer lines with that probe, you know that that's what it is. Okay, So yeah, it probably goes in between the two, but you're not sure. $200 for a private locate service. If they'll certify their work... And be responsible if it's not where they say it is. I'd pay the $200. Um, once you have it marked, they probably are going to say that they're, they, they guarantee their work for two weeks or three weeks or something like that. But you know where it is forever now. Now, you might want to verify it by hand digging the area where they say it is and seeing if you can physically find it and find a depth on it. It's good information to know anyway. And then once you have it marked, you have it marked forever. So it's probably worth the $200. Bucks. Assuming they can locate it. Here's... The other problem. Most of these lines, as I said, are poly. They're poly. Um, and that means they don't conduct electricity, which you can see why they might want that in a gas line. Now, they can generate electricity, and you can get a lot of static from movement across poly, and that can be a, a hazard during a rupture, but in general, they don't conduct electricity. Which means that you can't do something like hook up a signal to them and use a locator wand to find them. Ah. Because if you want me to do a phone line or, or anything like that, there's different ways I can connect. But basically I can put a ring that induces a radio signal around the wire. And then I can get very, very accurate readings with the locator tool all the way back to where that line goes. Most of the time with gas, they're supposed to put a locating wire 
in the ground with a gas line. And then that'll be grounded on both ends. So you'll see the line and this piece of wire go into the ground together and come up together. Assuming nobody's ever damaged it or cut it, you put a signal on that line, and that sitting right next to your gas line, you locate it all the way around. I've almost, almost never seen one done that way. They're all supposed to be done that way, but I've seen it done very, very infrequently because if anybody can get away with not doing it, they won't do it because it's an added expense. And if I'm a contractor, every bit of expense I have is less profit than I have. So it may be very difficult to locate even with that. If, however, if, however, you have a locate wire, odds are you can go down to a place, an equipment rental place, and rent a utility line locator and get five minutes of instruction on how to use it and come home and do it yourself. You can probably rent that thing for about 50 bucks. And while you're at it, you could locate anything else you want to on your property. Now I'm going to give you something that's going to sound... It's about all the anti-metaphysical crap I just gave you. I'm going to give you something that sounds metaphysical. And I cannot tell you that it always works, but I can tell you that it does work. Dowsing. I know it sounds ridiculous. I had somebody prove it to me. I don't know why it works. I don't understand it, but I've seen it work. If you take the locator flags pull the little plastic off them, and bend them over so there's about six inches, and then it's shaped like a gun pointed out with the long side. And you hold the two of them loosely in your hand so they're parallel to the ground, and you walk over some water lines and gas lines where there's something moving through them. They'll come together over the line. I don't know why it works, but I had a guy insisted it worked that I used to work with in contracting. And he's like, you try it. So I go walking. He's like, you know, just walk. So they come together. We make a mark in the dirt. And we go up the road. And on concrete where they spray the marker paint, there's a blue line for water. And I go back and I'm you know, trying to, trying to and over and over again, the same spot. I've also seen it where you try it, it doesn't work. I don't know why it works. I don't know if in that moment I was convinced of something and you're actually doing it yourself, but the preponderance of evidence is that it can work. Um, I don't know that it would work on a small service line. I don't know that it really works at all. I'm almost a little hesitant to put this out, but I've seen it happen and I've seen it done. I, I haven't been able to replicate it with an electrical line or a phone line. So if it's psychological, you would think, if I kind of sort of know where the line is, then I'm going to intentionally do this. I've only seen it work with something that has a movement. And I don't know if there's some sort of, I don't know. I know some of you are going to say I'm full of shit. All I can say for you is try it for yourself. Go find a place where you find a red line, or not a red line, a blue line or a yellow marker line and see if you can replicate it. And if you can't, then it doesn't work for you. And if it does, then maybe you're fooling yourself. I don't know. But you can at least try it and see. And it'd be interesting because I believe there's other things that can cause this thing to happen too. And I also think it can be on the edge of witchcraft bullshit used to sucker people out of money where a guy says, I'm a dowser and I find where to drill your well. And he says, drill here and you drill and you find water. And he turns out that if you would have drilled anywhere around there deep enough, you'd hit the water table and find water. So... I, I don't know on this one, and I'm open to your comments about it, either negative or positive, and I'm not saying to rely on it. Uh, I'm just saying that it's something you can play with and, and 
kind of fool around with yourself and see if there's any validity or value to you in it. But in this instance, I'd probably pay the money. Because I've seen times where it looks like a straight shot, and you're sure that's where that line is, and it ain't there. And, buddy, gas and electricity in particular can get you dead. And don't mess around things that can get you dead. And I promise you, if you cut that line, if you cut that line, by the time it's over with, it'll cost you a hell of a lot more than 200 bucks. I promise you that. Let's take another call, or another uh, email. Uh, real quick before I go on, uh, just some people might be wondering, why won't the gas company do what they're supposed to do and locate the line? Because his meter is up by his house. It's out at the edge of his property. And once that gas goes through the meter, it's not theirs anymore. It's yours. And, and companies generally don't accept liability for something when they don't already have it. So it's not their problem, and they're not going to make it their problem by, you know, quote-unquote helping you. Anyway, next one comes from Amy, just a little short one here. Uh, hey, Jack, I'm listening to you talk about the education system, and I just had to tell you this. My daughter has been playing with educational iPad apps and watching Sesame Street for maybe six months now, which isn't too strange. But the other day, my husband was spelling the word chocolate to ask me if I wanted one. And our daughter started to whine that she wanted one, too. She is two years old. So even if she's on the downhill side of two, heading for that old age number of three, like let's say she's two years and ten months, which I guess she could be anything from two years and a day here to two years and 364 days, how many two- to three-year-olds know how to spell freaking chocolate? Seriously. I'm telling you, folks, The world has changed in the world of education. And it's time that we free our children to utilize all the wonderful things that we have today and have a greater control of self-directed learning. Most, much of what we're teaching them in school is bullshit. And I'll tell you how I know it's bullshit. This is how I know it's bullshit. If I take you and I give you a test right now of things that you supposedly learned between, let's say, 6th and 12th grade, when you were old enough to kind of be learning things that are relevant to your life. And I take out the general knowledge stuff, like who discovered America, right? Because it's always Christopher Columbus, even though it really wasn't. But, you know, that 1492 Columbus sold the ocean, sold the ocean movement. Anyway, stuff like that. I take away things like, you know, what country is north of the United States of America? What country is south of the United States? And there'd be people that couldn't get that right, by the way. But just, I take away the basic, like, the, the, what is the law of gravity and things like that. And I, 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 I stick to the countless test questions that you studied for and answered correctly on your tests. And I made a test today of the things that are just... The general test questions that most students answer between 6th and 12th grade. And I take a person who got mostly A's in school and who has since gone on to college, graduated, and has a good job and a good career. And I sat them down and handed them a question, a sheet of 100 questions that they had to answer. I think most people would fail the test. They would fail the test. Okay, many people would pass it with like a low D to a high C, which is not adequate considering that this was foundationally important information for you to learn that you're going to need someday, Johnny. Right? So there'd be a whole, and there'd be very few people that would do very well on that test. And many of them would be people like me who actually did very poorly in school. 
They just remember shit really well and be like, oh, this is interesting. So since it's interesting, they would use their powers of recollection to answer most of them pretty well. And as long as you didn't put a bunch of calculus on there, they would do pretty good. It was fact-based stuff, just like questions and answers. And if you made a multiple choice, people like me just aced the shit out of that test, even though we were like, you know, people say they're like an A-B student or a B-C student, right? You know, you don't, you don't hear very often what I was. I was an A-D student. Not ADHD, AD. Like, I got A's and D's. I got A's in classes that I found interesting, and I got D's because they were good enough in classes I didn't give a shit about. Right? So, the AD student would probably get a really good score on this test. Right? Now, all of those people are successful in life. So, how important was the information that they were told you have to spend two hours a day working on homework to retain when they don't retain the information for the rest of their life? Yet, If we take a student, whether homeschooled, unschooled, or conventionally schooled, that's successful in life, that's, that's intelligent, all the stuff I was talking about in the beginning, the actual relevant shit, they would do very well on a test about that. So they learned all of the things that actually are germane to their lives, right? All the things that are relevant to their lives, in spite of all the minutia and bullshit and nonsense, So how can you then look your kid in the face, your 10th grader in the face, and now these kids are getting hours of homework per class, right? I had one lady tell me that her, her daughter was in advanced placement something. And when they went to parent-teacher night, the, the teacher said, I only give 30 minutes to an hour of homework at night. I don't know what the problem is. They said, well, you give 30 minutes to an hour, so-and-so. And the kid ends up with five hours of homework at night, Okay. How do you look that kid in the face and say, you're really going to need to know all this stuff you're learning right now, and what you're doing is actually important for your future? The second one could be true in a roundabout way. If they're on a path to go to university, to get a degree, and get a career that actually needs a degree, it could be important to their future, but not because it should be, just because it is. It is time, America, to stop lying to ourselves and stop lying to our children. There's nothing wrong with high educational standards, but what are we to base them on? It's like when I was talking earlier about this whole permaculture certification thing. I'm more interested in the guy that successfully applied it than the person that's taught it for 10 years. Where, where is your results? What are, what are your results? And if you have better results in a year than someone else's in 10 years, I actually really want the person with one year. I mean, I really, really, really want that person because they've proven that what they're doing works better. And, and this is what we're seeing. So you got a kid playing with an iPad, learning how to spell chocolate before they're three years old. And in a couple years, they're going to go to kindergarten, and they're going to start off with C-spot. C-spot, run. Run-spot, run. C-bill. Bill-like spot. Bill-pet-spot. Good bill. Good spot. When they already know how to spell chocolate. This is very important that we teach them this way. You're going to teach children look, say, whole language, which is ridiculous, memorizing the way the word looks by writing it five times each. Right? You're going to give children tons of facts that they don't care about, that they're never going to care about, that are never going to dramatically impact their life. You're not going to make it engaging where they would actually want to know. You want to know how to make history engaging? You learn about the people that actually live the history. I mean, you'll learn more about history watching Tales from the Green Valley or Tudor Monastery Farm or Wartime Farm on BBC than you will in the average history room 
uh, history class in an American classroom today, or British for that matter, because it's actually relevant. Like, this is how people survived. This is what people dealt with. This is what people thought. This is what people were concerned about. This is why people did stupid shit. This is why people did smart shit, right? This is education for tomorrow. We live in a world today where the information that we can acquire in a day is immense. I think back to like the reports that I was saddled with writing. Here's something I was thinking about, right? So I liked astronomy, right? I liked astronomy. I had a, a, a science class in, I think it was my freshman year or my sophomore year, I don't remember, but there was the teacher was also the astronomy teacher, and there was a little bit of astronomy, and then there was an astronomy, dedicated astronomy class you could take as, a, as an upperclassman. And he taught in the planetarium, and he did a little bit of stuff. We actually had, a in Possible, Pennsylvania, a legitimate, real, like, museum-quality planetarium, like where you could put stars up in constellations and make the sky move and all this crap. Awesome, right? So he'd turn that on, and he'd talk about these things. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So when I took astronomy, we had to memorize, of our own choosing, 50 stars, constellations, and features. And we had a, a course. And during the course, we had to come in, uh, like during a study hall or something, some off time, and he would hand us the pointer just like he would point, and he'd say, okay. He wouldn't say, show me the Big Dipper. He'd say, show me everything you can show me in the winter sky and then do it in the summer sky for our latitude. And you'd be like, well, there's the Big Dipper. There's Dubay and, Mer Mer uh, Dubay and Merrick, the pointer stars. They point over to Polaris, which is the North Star. And then there's the Little Dipper that Polaris is part of. So that's four. And it was one of the only things, I, and I didn't need to study for it, because I could have walked in there and just banged it out, right? It was the only, one of the only things I ever studied for in high school, because I thought it was neat. And I had all these star charts that were part of our class, and I sat there and I looked at them all. And I would learn, like, you know, like in Orion, you could get... Uh, five real easy because you had Orion itself, you had uh, Betelgeuse, Bellatrix, and Rigel as, as main stars on the shoulders and the one knee, and then there was a star in the belt called Mintaka. See, I remember this to this day, right? And there was the Orion Nebula, so you could get six, right? So I was thinking, just I don't even know what made me think about this other than all this stuff I've been talking about how screwed the educational system is today. What if I had the internet back then? Because this is what happened. I went in there and started banging this stuff off, and I was naming stuff he had never talked about, but they were on the charts. Right, And I think I rattled off like a hundred. And I went, well, I guess that's it that I can see from here. And we hadn't gone to the second season sky, the summer sky yet. We were still in the northern sky, or the winter sky. And he says to me, and I was, I was still going by the, the name John at the time. He goes, John, I'm sorry I wasted your time. And I looked at this teacher. I still remember his name, Mr. Guzik. And I said, Mr. Guzik, you did not waste my time. This is one of the most fun things I've ever done in school, ever. He thought because it was so easy for me, it was wasting my time. But it was easy for me because for once, I wasn't actually wasting my time. I was actually learning something that engaged my mind and made me think beyond the basic limits of the little coal town that I lived in. To think, wow, those, those two stars that look side by side are actually, you know, one's nine light years away and the other one's a hundred light years away. And wow, when I look at the light from that one star, And I see that light going into my eye today. That light's a hundred years old. So I'm actually seeing a hundred years into the past. And that opened up a whole new world to me from a conceptual standpoint. I was able to conceive of things I would have never even thought of just because my thought process changed. And guess what? It wasn't conventional schooling that did it. It was a guy 
who broke the rules of a lesson plan and said, hey, if we're going to say you're really learning this stuff, show me that you've learned it. There was no way that anything that he was doing was really directed by the state plan because he was in this kind of weird elective science thing. He was able to kind of do his own thing with it. And by telling us stories and teaching us things like, hey, we can actually tell how far away that star is using the calculus that you think is boring. And I'd go, really? Well, it's really trigonometry, but let me show you. Oh, now that's interesting. Now there's a purpose to it, right? Oh, wait, there's a cheat formula for it? Oh, okay, I'll just use that instead. Why? Because I'm not actually going to have a career in this. I just find it interesting. This is how all of our children should be learning today. If you're teaching children something that really matters to them, you don't have to force them to do research. There were times I was supposed to be working on a term paper that I half-assed because I found the subject boring that I spent getting ready to do this thing and point these stars out because I found them interesting. What if everybody did that? They wouldn't learn the important things. Like what? Like what? Like how to get a job, stick to it even though you hate it, and stay there instead of building something like the Survival Podcast. Is that what they would learn? And if that's the case, then who benefits through that type of an educational system? Stop defending a dying system, folks, because that's what, what's going on. That's what's When people defend the current education system, they're defending a dying, outdated, archaic system that does not address the realities of today. A system still being run pretty much the same way as it was in the 1880s, in 2014. There's really no other system like that. There's really nothing out there like that, that some better model hasn't come along to replace. Well, a better model has been in existence for a long time. What's happened is the Internet's turbocharged it. Because, again, my question that I kind of got off on this memory lane thing with was, if in 1988, I guess, when I was in high school and I did this little astronomy project, if, if instead of star charts I had the Internet and I could actually learn all the stars um, in Orion, instead of just four of them, I would have. But it was very difficult to find the information back then. Now I could just go, stars in Constellation Orion, bam. Well, that could be with anything. And our children will move faster and learn more and go past us and do things we can't even think of if we will get the hell out of their way and let them do it. That's why I continuously call for reform of our education system, not by fixing it, but by dismantling it and finding completely new ways to educate our children. And uh, thankfully, I don't really have to call for it. I just have to point out that it's happening. And things like the Internet have pulled the genie out of the bottle. And this is what we've learned in history. Once a genie's out of a bottle, you cannot put him back in. He'll never go back in. It's never going away. It's never going to stop. It's only going to evolve further from here. Uh, with that, I think we've uh, rounded out about an hour and 45 minutes today, and I'll wrap up today. And I want you guys to understand why I do shows like this Monday show. One is because it's all the stuff that you're concerned about. Yeah, it's not directly applicable a lot of times to survivalism. But my show is about how to build your life in a resilient way. How to build your family resiliently. How to build your children with resilience. To stop creating these teacup kids that can't function when they lose. And to think about preparedness like a fire marshal. 
I'm not just there to help you when the fire's raging, know what to do to get your family out of the house, or put the fire out or call the fire department, and, and what to do with the burning ashes when it's over with. I'm also there to tell you, here's how to prevent the fire from happening in the first place. When we build resilient food models, resilient family families, resilient uh, communities, resiliency in our children, resilience in our, our, our debt management and our economic systems on a personal level, we head off a good 80 to 90% of the disasters that are possible, and we severely mitigate you know, the other 8 or 9%, and we leave only the 1% of apocalyptic, you know, world-shattering, altering disasters. And as far as preparing for those, prepare for all the other ones that are more likely first, and you'll probably be more prepared for that than most people ever could be. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Shut